Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Part four of First Love, Cultivating a Burning Heart. And we are going to pick up today with a very familiar passage of scripture. But youth and young adults out there, I, I need to give you guys a disclaimer, okay? So how many of you young people were at RXP in May? Okay, I see some hands. Okay, that's cool. It was an awesome night. Actually, unbelievable. I wish you could have all been there. I believe the Holy Spirit showed up and genuinely moved in our midst as we worshiped him. It was incredible. And here's the disclosure. A lot of the content from today's sermon is going to be the same as RXP, okay? But don't you go checking out on me because I believe that the Lord wants to deliver this in a fresh way to our hearts today. But further than that, I actually also, as I was thinking about it, I went, Lord, is it bad to, you know, preach on the same thing, you know, at RXP and then here at church? And then I thought, you know what? We need to be reminded often of the essential things. Isn't that the truth? I think that we're going to be speaking out of 1 Kings today, 1 Kings 18. I believe that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates to dividing even soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's Hebrews chapter four. And I believe that if that's true, then we could preach on 1 Corinthians 18, or sorry, 1 Kings 18, certainly twice, maybe even for a month, maybe even for a year. And we would still be able to get new things out of it, amen? And not to mention, I, I've also loved that this sermon series that Pastor Stefan's been taking us through is, it's so basic. And I think as Christians, we need that. We need to be reminded of the basics. You know, we don't come to church so that we can learn new things all the time. There, there's a, a hunger out there in the culture today that we wanna learn things. We wanna be, you know, keep our attention span going. So we want fresh things. Give me something new. And that's not bad, um, but the goal isn't always to give us something new at church. The goal is actually to stimulate wholesome thinking, to put before us the basic core things of our faith and allow the Lord to drill them deep into our hearts. And so that's what we're gonna do today. It's really interesting actually that God began to speak to me uh, early in this year, in the month of prayer and fasting back in January, he began to speak to me using a lot of illustrations and, and themes of fire, okay? So in my devotional times, I, I would be praying and God would be giving me pictures or images of fire. And he was stirring something in me. And then I would pray with a friend and, and as they were listening to what the Lord had to say, they would share with me, I just get this picture of, of a flame and the Lord saying, I wanna make it bigger, I wanna make it brighter, I wanna make it hotter in your life. And this was right before I was going on my holidays, actually. So I went into my holidays going, Lord, what, are you, what do you wanna do in my heart? And he said, I wanna fan into flames this passion inside of you. And he gave me this passage of scripture that I wanna share with you. This has been my theme passage of scripture all year. And I've mentioned this before, but I actually love to use this room during the weekdays as a place where I can go and pray. And I don't know how many times I've been pacing right here in this big alley and I've been quoting this passage of scripture as I'm thinking about the youth and the young adults in our church or I'm thinking about parents that I know. And I'm asking, Lord, would this passage be 
be worked out by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The passage is from Leviticus, chapter 6, verse 8. Starting in verse 8, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Give Aaron and his sons this command. The burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth through the night till morning, and the fire must be kept burning on the altar. The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offerings on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings. The fire must be kept burning continuously on the altar. It must not go out. I love that passage. I love that passage. And fire, it can symbolize a lot of things in our lives. When you think of fire in relation to your, to your walk with God, to your relationship with Jesus, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? For me, it's, it's passion. When I think of this passage and I think about that fire must be kept burning on the altar at all times, I think about my zeal and my passion for Jesus for him being the number one pursuit in my life, far above anything else that this world could offer. Give me Jesus. That's what comes to my mind. Maybe for you it's worship, or maybe it's urgency, but whatever it is, I love this picture of the fire must be kept burning. Don't let that go out. You know, I, I like to think of on the altar, that's, they were preparing it to give sacrifices to God. Imagine for a moment if the fire did go out. So it's just, a, it's just a cold stone altar with some wood laying on top of it. Fire's out and you try to make a sacrifice to the Lord. So you lay that meat on top of the altar, there's no flame. What would happen? That meat would, would just sit there. It would rot, right? It would be good for nothing. That, that sacrifice that you want to make to the Lord... It wouldn't be made. It would just simply sit there. And now this is a terrible analogy, but I think it'll catch the attention of maybe some, some middle-aged men in this room. Okay, let's talk about barbecuing for a moment. You're like, tell me more. Sorry, there won't be another barbecue after the service this week. Um, but imagine a barbecue, and you get the best meat, just a big, thick-cut piece of steak, and you want to barbecue that but you're like me and you go to turn on your barbecue and you realize that you're out of propane? Has that ever happened to you? It's a nightmare. I had to go to my neighbor's house and sheepishly ask, can I please borrow your propane tank? And he's an amazing guy. He of course said yes. But imagine if you had this amazing steak that you were gonna prepare and you had no flame to cook it. What's the point, right? What's the point? No, you would, that would be a horrible thing. And it's the same in our walk with God. Imagine if there's no fire. Imagine if there's no passion, there's no zeal, there's no urgency. What happens to our sacrifices of praise and thanks to God? It goes cold, it just sits there. You don't feel like you wake up in the morning with an urgency. I just gotta get downstairs and get to the table so that I can thank Jesus for what he's doing, so that I can go to his word and let it fan into flames this passion in my heart. Fire illuminates in our lives. Fire re reveals to us. It refines. It warms us. It warns us. Fire consumes. And fire sparks urgency. So here's a big question for you this morning, church. What is the condition of your fire? That's what this series has been about. What is the condition of your flame? 
the one that's burning inside of you. As we go into summer, what is the condition of that flame that you have? And you know, back to Leviticus chapter six, what I love about it is, the word actually says that we have a part to play. Yes, the Lord, he sends that fire, he does. But he says to us, add firewood. What's the condition of our flame? We're gonna come back to that at the end of the sermon. But if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to go ahead and open them up to 1 Kings chapter 18, okay, Old Testament. We're gonna spend the morning focusing our attention around this passage that I think we're all gonna recognize, okay? 1 Kings 18, of course, tells the story of Elijah calling down fire from heaven. It's an epic story. I know when I tell my kids this story from the Bible, it's one of those kind of stories that makes the eyes go wide. What happened? Fire fell from the sky? Yeah, it's an epic story. But before we read it together, and you guys know I love to read scripture out loud when I'm preaching, so I'm gonna read a big chunk of scripture to us today. But before we get there, I wanna share just a little bit of context with you all for what is going on leading up to 1 Kings 18, leading up to this epic story. Okay, because context will help us understand and really put ourselves into the story. So context for 1 Kings 18. The story takes place at a dark time in Israel's history. Long after King David, the man after God's own heart, sat on the throne of Israel and he ruled, you know, really reflecting what God wanted in the, in the nation. He made his mistakes, absolutely but we see him as a good example of, of a king that pursued God. Long after David though, and after numerous other kings had sat upon the throne, there came a particular king named Ahab. He ruled over the northern kingdom of Israel while King Asa, he was reigning in the south on Judah. And King Ahab was a wicked king, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. Let's just see how the word describes King Ahab, okay? In the 38th year of King Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Quite a reputation, eh? He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jericho, Jeroboam, son of Nabat, he also married Jezebel and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal and that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made Asherah poles and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So we're starting to get an understanding of who this king was. Not a man after God's own heart not faithful in his calling to lead the nation, full of sin and rebellious. And it was under these circumstances that Elijah enters the storyline of Scripture. I love Elijah. Oh, I love reading the stories of Elijah and Elisha. Amazing what God did through his life. We don't know much about Elisha, or Elijah, sorry, we know that he was a devoted follower of the Lord and that he had enough courage to stand up to King Ahab. Which really, when you think about it, kind of read over that detail, but that takes a lot of courage 
to go to someone that you know openly does not follow the Lord and stand up to him. Elijah did that. Elijah declared the word of the Lord to Ahab, announcing that there would neither be rain nor dew in the land for the next few years. Now this was discipline, right? This was discipline on the nation of Israel and on Ahab for not following the Lord. This is, follows the same pattern as all of the other judges and prof, prophets. The Lord would send the prophet to announce, this is what is going to happen. And the reason why is because the Lord wanted to discipline so that the nation would respond to him. We talked about this at length in the last sermon series that I preached on the Father's heart. And we talked about how discipline is sent by the Lord to try to bring us back onto the right path. But it's not always a guarantee that it will because we have a part to play in choosing how we are gonna respond, right? We have a part to play in responding to discipline. Well, we do know that this prophecy displeased Ahab, but it didn't dis deter him from his rebellion, meaning he chose to not respond in humility. We read that he actually doubled down on his sin, and he and his wife Jezebel scoured the lands in hope of finding Elijah and killing him, as well as they rounded up a bunch of the Lord's prophets, and they did kill the Lord's prophets. And not to mention, they also increased the wickedness of the land. They continued in their idol worship of Baal and Asherah. In chapter 18, Elijah appears again, and he's not coming to apologize. He's not coming in, you know, it's been three years, kind of sheepishly walks up to Ahab. Sorry about that word that I gave, that it wouldn't rain and all. No, he's not coming like that. He's coming again to confront and challenge King Ahab on why aren't you responding to the Lord? Elijah confronts Ahab and all of the prophets of Israel, and he confronts them on their compromised hearts. And that brings us to the passage that we're going to look at today, 1 Kings 18. All right, let's start reading in verse 16 of chapter 18, okay? It says, Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Gotta love that. That is Old Testament trash talk right there. Oh, he's laying the smack down. Is that you, you troubler? What's up? And Elijah goes, I haven't made trouble for Israel. Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word through all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And that's kind of the problem, right? The people said nothing. They said nothing when he announced the drought either. At least we don't have any record of it. He comes and confronts King Ahab on his wickedness and sends a drought, and the people say nothing. They don't cry out. And again, he's confronting them again three years later, and the people say nothing. So the first thing we're going to notice from this passage is Elijah is confronting a divided heart in the people. Who are you going to follow? 
Who are you going to follow? How long will you waver between two opinions? One translation I read said, how long will you totter between two opinions? Meaning, you know, one day they're, ah, oh, maybe the Lord. The next day, ah, oh, maybe Baal. You know, they're, they're wavering. They're tottering back and forth. There's division in their heart. You know, we've all been there, right? I think today we, we read stories like this and we go, well, I mean, the whole idol worship thing doesn't really apply because we don't live in a culture or a context where we are per se tempted to bow down to an idol or a statue. That, that to us, when we, sound, when we hear it, it sounds almost silly, like, well, no, I'm not divided between worshiping Jesus or worshiping an idol. I mean, in certain areas in our culture today, that's still around, don't get me wrong. But generally speaking, I think a lot of Christians read this and they go, ah, ah that doesn't really apply to me. Well, just because we don't have idol worship in our context, in our culture, doesn't mean that we don't have our own modern day equivalents. Believe me, scripture makes it clear that we still have idols to deal with. There is still division a battle for a divided heart within us. Certainly, I'm not the only one that's felt conflicting desires when trying to follow Jesus. Now, I won't do a show of hands, or I mean, we could all just raise our hands if we we're truthful, but we get that, conflicting desires within us, right? And that's why the New Testament, well, really the whole word of God speaks again and again about having a single heart that is devoted only to God and avoiding having a divided heart and fighting the conflicting desires within us. That's why our hearts need to be confronted regularly by God's word. There's some passages in this book, in God's word, that if I'm honest, when I read them, they're pretty uncomfortable. Do you ever have that when you're reading a passage and you go, ooh, that stings, that's heavy. That's probably not the verse that I'm gonna to choose to focus on at Bible study this week, right? Well, let's go to, you know, one on the Lord is loving and gracious because there's certain ones that just, ah, uh, they confront us, but we need that. Our hearts need to be confronted at times by God's word and by his spirit. Not so that we sit in a place of condemnation. No, no, that's not why. It's so that we will turn to God and walk out a life of repentance and becoming more like him. There's a big fancy word for that. It's sanctification, but it just means the process through which the Holy Spirit is making us more like Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful promise? That if we obey and walk in unity with God, if we choose to say yes to him, the Holy Spirit's task is to make us more like Jesus. I want to give you just one example of a passage. In particular, this one has made me feel uncomfortable in the past. It's from the book of James, and it is convicting. That's the warning for you. This is a convicting passage. But I want us to consider what it says. James starts by saying, You adulterous people, don't you know that your friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? 
but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You know, I was meditating on this passage once and like I said, it, it confronted me. But all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit took it and he flipped it around. There's a particular phrase in this passage that all of a sudden just stood out among the text. And all of a sudden, this was an encouraging passage to me. And I'll tell you what verse I'm talking about. It's when he says, or do you not think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he's caused to dwell in you? I started thinking about that. He jealously longs for me. I understand that. There's a lot of things about God's love that I don't understand. And I can't fathom the depths of his love. And all of a sudden, this verse stood out to me. He's jealous for me. I know that kind of love. Do you know jealous love? The first example that comes to my mind, obviously, as a husband... I have a jealous love for my wife, Ellie. And to think about someone else holding her hand just drives me mad. Okay, there's very few things that make me want to just punch someone in the nose, which I wouldn't do. But that would be one of them. Right? We understand that jealous love. I'm not willing to share her love. That's exclusive. Me and her as a married couple and vice versa. I get that, and then I stop to think, wait a minute, Jesus, you mean you feel jealous over me? And suddenly this verse went from, I read it from a place of God being kind of like this taskmaster that looked down on me and said, just be better, do better, don't mess up, don't mess up. And suddenly I saw it for what it truly is, which is a Lord looking down and going, I love you with jealous love. I'm not willing to share you. I don't want your affections to be divided. Yes, this passage is supposed to confront us, but it also encourages us. You know, I read a quote one time, or I didn't read it, sorry, I heard a quote one time. It was the first quote I remember hearing as a Christian. It was in a sermon here at this church, and it was said by actually Chris Puhatch. And I didn't know him at the time. I said, this guy's kind of intense. But I'm listening to him. And uh, you all know now, I'm very fond of Chris Buach. Very, very fond. Wasn't his last message, by the way? Wow. Was that not just a good word? And despite the weird blip there with the electricity, it was still awesome. Anyway, he said this quote, and it stuck with me ever since. He said this, Compromise is the hardest place to stay. You have too much sin to enjoy God and too much God to enjoy your sin. And I went, that is so true. God confronts us on the divided heart, not only because he's not willing to share. That is certainly true. He is a jealous God. He wants our whole heart. But also he goes, for your own good, don't live in compromise. 
Don't live divided in your heart. Follow one thing wholeheartedly. Follow me. And so this is the question. Who will you follow? And this is Elijah's question to the people on Mount Carmel. Who are you going to follow? And notice the wording that he says to them. If the Lord is God, follow him. If the Lord is God, follow him. I want you to notice here that Elijah does not appeal to their feelings. Today, in our culture, we love to appeal to people on the basis of feelings. Come on, do this. It's going to make you feel awesome. It's going to feel like Christmas morning. Just do it. It's going to make you happy. It's going to make your life better, more vibrant. But that's not what Elijah does here. He doesn't appeal to them on terms of their feelings. He appeals to them on, a, on terms of their logic. There's this sense today that if religion is good for anything, it's only good if it adds, you know, joy to your life. If it's, you know, an inspiring quote or a happy thought that's going to give you a, you know, a fresh outlook on the world around you. And look, I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't add joy to my life. Can I actually tell you Jesus adds the most joy to my life? Just this week, I don't know why I've been doing my devotions in the garage. I know it's weird. I know it's weird. And my wife has to park the van outside, but it's just been so good. It's been this little place that I can go and connect with Jesus. And can I tell you, two mornings ago, I woke up so discouraged. I went downstairs, I opened the, the word. I went, God, I'm not really feeling it today. And Jesus met me. And I felt joy. I felt peace. I felt like he was right there with me. And so I'm not saying that feelings aren't a part of it. But they're not everything. We certainly don't need to give all the emphasis to feelings. Elijah appeals to their logic. And he says, if the Lord is God, if he is God, then you need to follow him. Elijah's appeal is to truth about who Jesus is, who God is. And the term Lord, if Jesus is Lord, that has a demand on our life, right? We understand that. We talk about that here at this church. If he is God, that means we have to do something with it. It's not an option. He confronts us. If he is the resurrected king, if he died in our place, rose back to life and now offers us a life that we couldn't have gotten on our own, and this promise of eternity with him, that means something for the way that we are going to live from then on out. If he is Lord, then follow him. That's Elijah's appeal. So now moving on, there's going to be a contest. And when I say contest, I mean contest with the air quotes. You know, do the air quotes with me. It's a contest. Yes, it's not actually a contest, as in, the Lord doesn't actually need to compete with anyone. He's on a whole nother level. But there's a contest that's going to play out for the people's benefit. 1 Kings 18, verse 22, Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. 
Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So they agreed to this contest, it makes sense to them. They're going to now create two offerings and the one that is consumed by fire after calling out to their God, that is the one who is God. But it's interesting to note that the contest actually does not start here in chapter 18. Rather, it started in chapter 17. This contest between Baal and Yahweh started in chapter 17 when Elijah declared the drought. You know, as I was studying these chapters, I came across something very fascinating to me anyway. It just stopped and made me go, oh man, that adds a depth to this passage. I want to read to you a portion from the IVP background Bible commentary on this, uh, this contest in particular, okay? It says this, the dispute championed by Elijah concerns which deity is king, which is more powerful. In the Canaanite material available from the ancient literature, Baal is the god of lightning and storm meaning he's the god of fire and rain. That's how the people thought of him. And he is responsible for the fertility of the land. By withholding rain, Yahweh is demonstrating the power of his kingship in the very area of na nature over which Baal is thought to have jurisdiction. If Baal is the provider of rain and Yahweh announces that he will withhold it, the contest is on. Don't you love that line? The contest is on. And you see what the Lord is doing here is he is putting himself in front of the people and going, you want a contest? Me versus Baal? This God who is the God of fertility, the God of, you know, rain that's going to bring up the crops? All right, let's have a contest. I say there's going to be no rain. And guess what? There's no rain. Now Elijah comes back to the mount, meets them three years later and goes, all right, you want another contest? Do you want to see? Yahweh or Baal, let's go. And he's going to say, now let's do it on the basis of fire. Elsewhere in scripture, we see the Lord specifically confronting so-called gods and displaying his kingship or his power over them. So an example would obviously be the Exodus and the plagues on Egypt where God is judging the gods of Egypt. Or another one, when uh, the ark is put into the temple of Dagon, I believe it is, in 1 Samuel. And remember, the statue falls down and breaks apart in front of the ark of the Lord. So this isn't a new idea that Yahweh competes and shows that he is superior to any of the so-called gods around him. So that's what's going on here. Elijah challenges Ahab and the prophets of Baal to another contest. Not only did Yahweh humiliate Baal with withholding rain, now he's going to send the fire too. Because supposedly, Baal is supposed to be the god of both. They were each to prepare a sacrifice, and they would each call in the name of their Lord their God and ask for fire to ignite the offering. And to quote Elijah, the God who answers by fire, he is God. And a note here, remember that this started with rain. And so they're preparing this sacrifice, and the people had this understanding. If we want the rain back, which they desperately needed, Living in a drought like that would have made life miserable. They desperately needed the rain to come back, but they needed some sort of penance, some sort of forgiveness. They needed an act of the supernatural. 
And so Elijah's saying, all right, let's see which one responds. Is it going to be Baal or is it going to be Yahweh? Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call in the name of your God, but do not light it on fire. So they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and he must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now, obviously, what they're doing is wicked and evil. But isn't there a sense of sadness in our hearts when we read about that? Just a desperation. Please, please do something. And they're dancing and frantically trying to prophesy. And then it says, they shouted louder and they started slashing themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until blood flowed. You can just see the desperation in these men. Please, Please, Baal, answer us. But nothing. Notice this. They made their blood flow to invoke action from their God, but nothing happened. And I want you to think about the gospel for a second. Our God let his blood flow to invoke salvation on our behalf. Do you see the fundamental difference between this so-called God of rain and fire and the one true God, Yahweh? He is unlike anything else in this world, church. He is unlike any so-called God out there. That he would pay his own blood to invoke on our behalf salvation and that we could respond. This whole first love thing, what have we been saying this whole time? We love because he first loved us. Isn't that beautiful? So, they tried Baal. It didn't work. Now it's Yahweh's turn. Elijah's going to step up to bat, and let's see what happens. Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sayas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time. You know, very dramatic. He's really trying to make a point here. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. Water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. And at the time of sacrifice, Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Do you love the simplicity there? There's no 
frantic dancing and prophesying. There's no slashing himself. At the time of sacrifice, Elijah steps forward and he prays. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you are the Lord and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and it even licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They just fall down on their face, and wouldn't you? I mean, if, if I saw a giant firebolt coming down and igniting this altar, I think I would fall down too. But it's more than that. They're acknowledging, okay, okay, he is Lord. He is God. And by the way, spoiler alert, we're not going to get to this today, but he also sends the rain. He doesn't just send the fire. He sends the rain back on the land. But, we're going to be moving now into the end of this sermon, and I have another question to ask you. We started by asking, what is the condition of your fire? Now I'm going to ask you, what is the condition of your altar? Here's a question. Do you want that fire of God in your life? Do you want that passion? Do you want that awe and wonder? Do you want that urgency that just drives you to your knees in prayer? And that just causes you to trust God no matter what circumstances life throws at you. Do you want that deliverance and that breakthrough? That's usually how we read this story, right? We see this fire fall down and we go, Lord, I want it. I want that fire. And that's what we've been talking about in the first love series. We want that fire. We want that passion. But I want you to notice something here. Very important and I remember as I was going through this passage for the first, you know, back in May when I was preparing for RXP and the Lord just brought this. I've never, I've never thought of this. Elijah doesn't start with calling for fire. He starts by addressing the state of the altar. And you know, order matters. Order matters to God. And that's not just a small detail Elijah starts with the altar. Elijah said to all the people, come up here, and they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And he takes 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of it, that had descended from Jacob, and he put them up and said, the Lord said, your name shall be Israel, and with the stones he built the altar in the name of the Lord. If we want the fire of the Lord in our lives, we must start by repairing the altar or preparing the altar, which is our hearts. In the New Testament, it talks about that we are a temple for the Holy Spirit. We read in the Old Testament about the altar and the temple and its magnificent big structure. The New Testament says, we are the temple of the Lord. He's caused his Holy Spirit to dwell right inside of our chests. Think about that. So before we get all excited about calling down the fire of God to fill us with passion, what is the state of our altar? 
And what does it say about a nation whose whole identity is supposed to be wrapped up in following the Lord and obeying his commands? What does it say about the state of a, of a nation if they don't even have an altar? It's completely torn down. So if the church, if our church and the church in Canada and the church in the West and the church across the world wants to get serious about God, send the fire. We want to see passion for you. We want to see a generation raised up that's going to follow you boldly. If that's our prayer, which I hope it is, then we need to first stop and ask, what is the condition of our altar? Altars are not unique to Israel. We see other nations have them. Other people groups use them. Israel is, however, unique among the nations, and God gave them a law which outlined how to use the altar. And followers of Jesus today, although we do not have a physical altar anymore, thanks to Jesus' atoning death for us on the cross, we still understand that the altar means it's the place where we offer thanksgiving to God. It's our hearts. It's the posture of our heart. That's our altar. Also, Romans chapter 12. Therefore, because of God's great mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord, holy and pleasing to him. Part of our call is to get on that altar and offer our very lives to Jesus. So that's the big question. What is the condition of your altar? And I can't tell you how many times I've approached a worship time or even like a worship night. You go in and you just go, I, I need a fresh filling. I need some energy back into my walk with God. It's feeling dry. So you enter into this worship time and you go, all right, Lord, send me the fire. Send me the fire. And I don't stop to first go, God, what is the state of my altar? How about this for an opening prayer at a worship time? How about this? Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the path everlasting. What if that was our opening posture and prayer to the Lord as we entered into church together this summer? What if it was a posture of humility and we first asked, what is the state of our altar? All right, to wrap this up, a quick comment on the 12 stones that Elijah took to re rebuild the altar of the Lord. You know, we sometimes read stories like this and they seem like random details. Well, that's interesting, you know. Good thought. Takes the 12 stones. Yeah, that's, you know, for the 12 tribes of Israel. But there's significance to that. What was Elijah doing? Well, looking back to Exodus chapter 24 when the Lord was meeting with the people of Israel, right after the Exodus, right after he's forming them as a nation and he's giving them a covenant to enter into, you will be my people, here is the law. We read this. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. As in the people of Israel, they agreed to the terms. They went, all right, we will be your people. We'll follow you. We'll follow this law. Then Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said, and he got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up the 12 stone pillars, 
representing the 12 stones of Israel. And he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. You see, Elijah here, he's not being careless. He's pointing them back to their history. He said, you guys have forgotten who you are. Never mind, you're not making your sacrifices. You don't even have an altar. That needs to be rebuilt starting today. And he assembles the altar and he reminds them, this is who you are. You are Israel. You are God's people. And he is the Lord. He is our God. He is a God unlike any other God. They forgot who they were and they forgot who they followed. So here's my reflection at the end. I, I need to wrap this up pronto. So here's my reflection for us. I have two big questions that I've given you today. First is, what is the condition of your fire? What's the condition of your fire? And maybe you need to add wood to your fire. Maybe there's just embers left burning in the fire pit. My grandparents used to have one of those big, what are they called? You know, it's like an accordion thing and it fanned the you know, embers. Just nod and tell me that you know what I'm talking about. Okay, good. It's like this. You know, it blew the air onto the embers and stoked the flame. Maybe those embers are still there, but it needs to be fanned into flames. Maybe like Elijah, you need to pray and call out and ask the Lord to send fire into your life this week. And so here is my challenge. It's very simple. Add wood to your fire this week. I love that we have a part to play in this. We can choose to add wood to the fire the Lord sends the fire, but we can help by adding wood. So get into God's word this week. Maybe set aside a lunch break where you're going to worship the Lord. You're just going to get alone with him. Maybe you're going to ask a friend to go out for coffee with you. Maybe there's something that, you know, you just need to share and get off your chest with a good trusted friend. And you need to, you need to ask them to pray for you. But how can you add wood to the fire this week? And here's my second question for you. What's the condition of your altar? And this question really should be number one, as I pointed out. What is the condition of your altar? So if there's an area of your life where you are living with a divided heart, then start today by repenting, going, I'm sorry, Lord, for having a divided heart. Maybe you've forgotten whom you follow. Maybe you've forgotten to have your eyes on Jesus. Maybe you've forgotten who he says that you are. Maybe you're living under a weight of condemnation and guilt. I don't know what it is, but here's my ch second challenge for you. Maybe you need to do a study on the attributes of God. Maybe pick a book of the Bible that you're going to read through and ask God to give you that lens in which to see what does this book say about who is God and who does God say that I am. Or maybe you need to just sit down and write out your testimony. When's the last time that you just stopped to think about what, is, what has God all done in my life? Because it's not your story, it's his story. So maybe this week you just need to set aside a devotional time or carve out some time on your lunch break and you just need to write out your story, what God has done in your life. And then why not share that with someone? You're like, oh, that sounds scary. Well, maybe you share it with a family member 
or a trusted friend, someone from your cell group, but share your story and remind yourself and remind others of who you follow and who he says that you are. There you go, church. That's my word for you today. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is indeed living and active. Thank you, Jesus, that it fans us into flames as we as your followers rally around your word. You stir up in us a passion for you to follow you. So I pray, Jesus, that as a church this week, and really more than that, this summer, Lord, that we would fan into flames the fire within us. God, that we would come out of this summer with more passion for you, with more excitement about what you've done in our lives, with more time of worship and prayer and just reflecting on who you are. Jesus, I pray that you would do this in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, that you are so good to us. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Amen.